Welcome, Charlie, to the show. Thank you for joining me today. What was your addiction? Uh, so my DOCs were um, opiates, cocaine, and marijuana. Okay. So now how how old are you now? So I'm 42. I'll be 43 in about a month and a half. Okay. So how long have you been sober for? So my clean date is 2-2020. So... As I commend I commend you. Anyone who has stayed clean and got clean in the beginning through COVID, I like commend you so much. I was before that, and it's like it was hard because it just with COVID, like it was wild out there for a while. So yeah, I commend it, you. I I say the same thing, um, but this is not my first go around. Um, you know, I say this all the time. It's taken me the better part of 11 years to have this 23 months that I have. Um, so, you know, the groundwork and the seeds were laid uh, in the past. And I've said it before, if they weren't, um, I don't know that I would still be clean today through COVID and everything. Um, so, yeah, I, I say the same things, you know, particularly to people that this is their first time around, that they got clean any time within like the last two years um you know i say the same thing like i don't know that i would have been i don't know that i'd still be clean today if it wasn't for my past experiences in, in you know in the 12-step program that i'm in perfect now what 12-step program do you do so i'm an na okay obviously you don't drink right or did you drink during your addiction no not really, not really a part of my story um my mother was an alcoholic and is weird as this may sound um you know because i picked up other drugs um i always kind of looked down on alcoholics um you know being growing up in an extremely abusive home um with a very vicious alcoholic um you know i just wasn't something that i was like interested in you know even as a teenager you know friends would be drinking i would be the guy that would be in the corner smoking pot or you know popping a perk or whatever so mm -hmm. um never really been a part of my story that's interesting for us it's the opposite so um my mom was in a responsible way she has a back issue and she had taken pain medication she had like a pain patch and different medications she would take and eventually her body became dependent on those medications so and she would take them at specific times so she would sometimes forget to switch her patch so her patch would have no medicine she would not be getting any of that medicine i was like 15 or 16 and she had like started having a seizure and like wasn't coherent and I didn't know how to drive I had to get in my mom's car get her in the car drive her to the emergency room where they basically just she knew what was wrong once she came to and I was like I'm never gonna I don't want to ever go through that yeah. I barely even take like ibuprofen <laughs> so for me I've never touched any kind of drug so like for us, it's the opposite. And I do, I look on that, like, I don't want to ever, like, I didn't ever want that to happen to me. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So now explain to me, you said you've got, tried to get clean other times. So explain to me, like, when your um, addiction started, how that all went, and whatever you feel comfortable with sharing, please share. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm a, I'm a big believer for myself. Like you hear other, I've heard other people say, you, I'm sure you've heard other people say, like, I've always been an addict. I've been an addict my whole life. Um, I, I'm one of those people that believes that for myself. Um, but my addiction didn't really take off until I was about 21 years old. Um, you know, I, I'd smoked pot and stuff like that in high school and, you know, as a teenager, 
um, and you know, experimenting a little bit here and there, but <clears throat> excuse me, um, I had a work injury. Uh, I had broken two ribs um, when I, I worked as a sho catching shoplifters as a, you know, um, loss prevention agent or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I had broken a couple ribs and I went to the hospital and they sent me home with, uh, you know, a script of Percocet 10s and, um, you know, I think it was, I want to say it was 15 of them, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, this is, you know, 2001. So, you know, times were a lot different back then as far as prescriptions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so um, they sent me home. I, I think it was 15 of them and they were gone in two days. Um, and, you know, that was when it really kind of started to kick off. Um, it didn't get really really bad until probably um i was about 29 or so 28 29 is when it you know really started to get uh really out of control and really you know my life became unmanageable yeah now at that point were you doing everything all at once that you had described in the beginning or was it you were kind of like shuffling around explain how your use was so I always was a pothead. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I smoked weed throughout um, since like 14 years old. Um, but um, the cocaine was, you know, hit or miss uh, kind of throughout my entire, you know, 20 years of addiction. Um, it was, you know, it was something that, you know, I would go a few months or so where I used it a lot and then I could put it down. Um, but I, you know, kind of would always come back to it. Um, but it was always opiates. Oh, it's, you know, the, I, I fell in love early on and that was mm -hmm. always my, you know, that was my driving force to, to my addiction was opiates without a doubt. So now explain your childhood for us. I personally link, I, I like to set that link up. Um, I personally had a really traumatic childhood and almost everyone I've interviewed has as well, like some issue where, you know, there was just something off or it could be anything from depression to like my mom, you know, left my dad. So just explain to us like your childhood and how that went. And if there was anything really traumatic that happened. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely traumatic. Um, so at four years old, my father went to prison for two and a half years. And um, at that time, my mother started uh, sexually and physically abusing me. Um, so that went on for, uh, the entire two and a half years that he was in prison and then continued, um, until I was about eight years old. Um, and I was told, you know, this is what mothers and sons do and no one talks about it. Um, so, and the physical abuse was, um, was pretty drastic. Um, you know, I was made to stand up against the wall with my nose against the wall, and if it came off, I got beat. Um, I was put in. Um, uh, my grandfather was a like an amateur, you know, hobby like woodmaker, and he had made me a um, toy box when I was a kid, and it was like a little bench, and the seat opened up, and it was a toy box, and I was put in there, and I was made, you know, to take all my toys out and to go in there, and then. Um, my mother collected Hummel uh, figurines, and one of them had a little bell. And if the bell rang, you know, if she heard it, then I would get beat. Um, 
you know, I was put in closets and um, a lot of horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so those abuses, like I said, the sexual abuse uh, stopped when I was about eight years old. I have a younger brother uh, who is six and a half years younger. And, you know, at the time I didn't realize it, but, you know, looking back on it now and, you know, speaking to my brother about it over the years, you know, her focus shifted towards him. Um, but, you know, as an eight-year-old kid and, you know, being told that this is what mothers and sons do, and then when it stops, um, that's a very confusing thing for an eight-year-old kid um, because it made me think that she didn't love me anymore mm-hmm. because we weren't doing this thing that everyone does. Um, you know, I can remember going to school and hanging out with friends at that age and, and thinking like, wow, that, you know, him and his mom do that too. Um, it, you know, and not until I was older that, you know, obviously I didn't know that it was not normal, that it was not something that everyone did. Um, so that was, you know, that was bad, bad times. Um, and then, you know, like I said, I think I knew it in the back of my mind, um, back then, but I didn't really know it for sure until later that, you know, that it was, it was happening to my brother. Um, as far as the physical abuse, uh, I used to provoke my mother so that she would come after me and not, you know, physically abuse him. Um, you know, he did endure physical abuse too, but I don't know that he did to the extent that I did. Um, and the guilt of, um, you know, knowing Like I said, I know in the back of my mind when I got into like my teenage years that the sexual abuse was happening to him too. And the guilt of, um, you know, feeling as though that if I would have said something, if I would have told someone that maybe it wouldn't have happened to him. And that guilt uh, drove my depression and self-hatred for a lot of years. Um, And, you know, well into my addiction, in, in my opinion. Yeah, like, I mean, anybody that goes through that kind of situation, you need to cope with it somehow. There has to be some way that you cope with it. And unfortunately, when you were a kid, when I was a kid, there was no parenting like there is now where people are super hyper aware and where things are illegal. Like, I mean, I don't even really think someone tried telling me that spanking is legal. I know for a doubt that like, that's not true. Like, I know that if somebody catches wind of that, like that child's being ripped from that home. So like when I was a kid, that was allowed. And I don't think that my, I don't, from what I remember, I don't remember a lot. From what I remember, I don't think that that was done in a way where it crossed the line. But my parents didn't teach me how to cope. Like, when my parents got divorced, there was no, like, they didn't really, I mean, I was put in therapy, but, like, no one cared. Like, there was nobody being like, okay, so this is how we're going to cope with it. And we're going to sit down and you're going to have a journal and we're going to write all this stuff down. And then you're going to go and do this and, that like, these next steps. There was no there wasn't that like that didn't exist so it's like at this age like as an eight-year-old like how do you cope with something like that and then you find out later on oh my mom lied to me and then those feelings go from she doesn't love me anymore to she must hate me like why would she do that to me so now you had mentioned before that you felt you were had an addiction for your whole life explain to me how like how you see that um the obsession um the obsession for you know i mean i can remember um you know i can remember as a kid my aunt taking me to the like the toy store uh probably like six or seven years old and you know i was obsessed with gi joes 
and I could remember going and taking the price tag sticker off of matchboxes, which were a dollar, and putting them onto the GI Joes, which is which were five, and you know taking them back to my aunt and saying, "Hey, they're on sale. Could you buy these for me?" And so I just I mean things like that. Um, I think the 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 obsession, the the obsessive part of addicts was always something that was in me. Um, so that's what I mean when I say that. So now take us through when the age where you're at, where you're first like, you know, what, I'm, I'm going to get clean. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then explain to me like how that progresses and then to now. OK, so the first time that I attempted to get clean, like I said, was about 11 years ago. It was uh, in 2011 um, and I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. You know, I was doing it for everyone else, not really for myself. Um, I had. I, but it was also a time where I, I think, was the first time that I realized that I was really an addict. Um, you know, I was still in denial, you know what I mean? Because, you know, I had a job and I had, you know, a house and, and you know, my life was somewhat manageable, you know, in my opinion at the time. Um, and I tried to kick the opiate habit at home by myself. And um, my girlfriend at the time, her friend, had said, um, you know, have give them one of these. It'll help with the take the edge off of the withdrawal. <clears throat> and one of these was a Xanax. And <laughs> I never liked Xanax. Uh, um, I hate Xanax. I same. Um, oh. I, I took one like when I was like a teenager, uh, when I was probably about 16 or 17 years old. And I had one of those, you know, one of those nights where I didn't remember anything. And I had people telling me what happened the day the next day. Um, so I never really liked Xanax. I never messed with them. Um, but, you know, so I, I took that, you know, I, I, I took that suggestion at that time because the withdrawal was bad. And, you know, I took a Xanax to try to, you know, deal with the withdrawal and it knocked me out and, you know, helped me to sleep. And um, within about four to five months, I was eating 25 to 30 blues a day. Um, and I, like I said, I think that coinciding with going into I, I had went into to a program i went to a crisis center and then got moved to I, I had a suicide attempt at that time so when i went to uh a crisis center and they sent me to treatment they sent me to a treatment center that had a psych ward and i was put on the psych ward because of the suicide attempt and um at that time talking with my counselor and you know aa and na meetings coming in the facility um you know if that was the first time hearing about that you know trading one addiction for another and i think that was when i realized that you know look here was something that i didn't like that i'd never really taken and when that was presented to me i mean within a few months i was completely hooked on them and um yeah so i think that was the first time that i really realized you know, that I was an addict and, um, you know, that that treatment center was rough. You know, I was like I said, I was in the mental ward and I was in there with people that were. You know, and I'm just going to say the word, you know, people have, you know, different feelings about certain words or whatever, but I was in there with people that were truly insane. Yeah. Um, and I was also in there with people who tried to hurt themselves like I did. And I was also in there with people who said that they tried to hurt themselves so that they could get into treatment. 
because they didn't have ID or they didn't have insurance or whatever the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I was locked in for 35 days. Um, your meals come to the floor. Visitors come to the floor once a week for an hour. Um, and it was it was not a good time. Um, <laughs> it was a, I, I saw a lot of stuff. Um, so I was offered after those 35 days to go. Uh, this was on 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 the fourth floor of this facility and the first, second and third floor where, you know, regular, you know, um, treatment centers like, you know, rehab. So they offered me to go downstairs to the rehab and, um, you know, look, I I lost my hair very young. Right. And I shaved been shaving my head for probably about 20 years. And I just so happened to befriend another guy, another white guy who shaved his head also. And he went downstairs to the rehab. He, we were both on the fourth floor together. He went downstairs to the rehab, the second floor, like two days before me. So when I went down there, we kind of linked up and we got um, we got labeled as like the Aryan Nation boys or whatever you want to call it because we were two white guys with bald heads. And someone took all my clothes and put them in the corner and peed on them in my room um, the second day. So, you know, I called my girlfriend at the time and I told her what happened and I used that as an excuse to leave. Yeah. Um, and I went home and I can't be sure, but I, I think I lasted probably a week or two. Um, I had started going to the other fellowship. Um, and listen, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think it's worth saying I'm not the guy who's going to down one fellowship or the other. Um, all fellowships save lives. Um, and I've said, you know, before also like AA is the OG, right? If it wasn't for AA, there might not be an NA or a CA or a GA or any of them. Right. So I'm not going to be the one to down anybody. Um, but AA just doesn't speak to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a hard time relating with AA where alcohol is not a part of my story. And, you know, at that time, um, you know, I'm from Philly, so I was going into meetings in Philly and there was old timers and the whole keep it in the bottle thing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that was tough for me because I felt like I wasn't being honest. And, um, you know, for anybody who knows anything about uh, about Philly, even if you're not from here, I think most people who are, um, you know, in recovery or, you know, know about addiction, know about Kensington area of Philadelphia. Um, you know, they did a whole eight part series on intervention about it. And I was in an AA meeting and I heard a guy say that he had went to Kensington. He named a famous corner in Kensington that he had went to Kensington for a drink. And I was like, this is ridiculous, you know, and um, I just didn't, it didn't talk to, it didn't speak to me, you know, and, and like I said, I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't being honest. Um, so I just didn't connect with AA. And then um, a few years later in 2015 is when I tried to make another attempt um, at getting clean. And um, now before this, so in between yeah. here, do you, stop using the Xanax and you're done with the Xanax. Yeah. Or are you was, continuing? Okay. Uh, completely put down the Xanax and went right back to the opiates. Okay. Um, went back to using Percocets and, you know, Oxycontin at that time. Um, 
I th- so it was um, after that first stint in rehab when so there was a, a a friend it was an older lady that i knew through a friend that you know this is uh you know what tw- 2003 or so um so she was you know going to the doctor and i forget exactly what disease that she had but she was getting 90 oxy 80s a month and she didn't like them um, she didn't like the way that they made her feel. She didn't like the constipation and, you know, all that stuff. So, well, this is I also w- the time when all of this was so popular and hyped up and you could literally, and I want to make that known for people who are younger, who are listening, watch Dope Sick, please. And like, literally, this is a time where you could walk into a doctor's office, not even see a doctor, pay them, and they would give you these drugs. So like, this is, this woman not wanting these is probably the smartest decision she ever made. Yeah. And then unfortunately this brings it to like the realization, like she didn't like the way it made her feel and she didn't where other people are like, Oh, I need this. Yeah. And this was a time where literally it was so easy to get these drugs. Like, so it like, like you walk into a liquor store and pay for a bottle of booze. Like that's how easy it was. So I just want to make that known for people who are younger and don't understand that part. Yeah, I mean, it was it was super easy. I knew a lot of people that, you know, like they they talk about, you know, the, the doctor shopping and and going and getting, you know, three different prescriptions from three different doctors. And it, it didn't matter. I knew about people going out of state. Um, you know, I knew people that would go. Uh, there was someone I knew back then that would drive to Florida every two months and <laughs> on the way to Florida would stop in West Virginia um georgia and i I believe south carolina and would hit different doctors in each one of those states like every state had a little bit different rules or whatever Mm -hmm. um and would just come home with you know i don't know how many thousands of pills um but yeah this woman she she was from the suburbs of philadelphia she didn't know anything about you know the streets or whatever you want to say um but she knew that those drugs that she didn't like them and she knew for her marijuana worked for her Mm -hmm. and i was selling weed at the time like i wasn't you know a kingpin or anything i was basically just selling enough to uh support my own habit Mm -hmm. um so she had said to me do you think you could sell these for me and you know use that money to get me weed and Mm -hmm. i was like sure you know she had no idea that I was the one that was going to be taking them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trading. So she would keep one every month. So when she went back to the doctor, just in case they gave her a urine that they would be in her system. Yeah. 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 So I was trading her, uh, a quarter pound of weed every month for her 89 oxy 80s. Um, and, you know, used every single one of them. Um, and was still buying stuff on the street. Um, so yeah, during that time, like I said, that was when it, um, when the oxys were, were introduced, that's when it, it got, it really ramped up. Um, and my addiction really took off at that time. All right, so let's go now back to 2015. And then now you decide, now I wanna, I wanna preface this with that, 
a lot of people have what you had in 2011 where it was that first attempt not the place you went not that part but the part where they're like okay well i still have a roof over my head i still have a job i went through that i said i didn't i didn't say to myself like oh my god i have a problem i gotta stop but i was like you know i'm just gonna stop for a little while like i don't really like how excessive i'm being with this like let me stop so i had that same kind of situation where i don't really consider i personally don't consider that at a time of me trying because I didn't actually try. <laughs> yeah, so, right. so like in that situation, now you go where you weren't, you weren't ready. Like you said, you can't, you can't stay sober doing it for other people. And that's the honest truth. And you can't be like, you know what? Okay. My boyfriend wants me to get sober. So like, I'm going to go get sober now. And like, you're not going to stay sober because number one, once that relationship fails, cause it is going to, once that relationship fails, like, what are you going to do? Start doing what you were doing again? Like, you can't sustain that. So explain to me how 2015 was different for you. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so 2015, um, it was basically the same story as 2011 <laughs> minus the uh, suicide attempt. Yeah. Uh, you know, things had gotten bad again. Um, uh, so at that time, uh, me and my girlfriend at the time, we had a house together. And so that that was one thing that was there. We lost the house, um, you know, basically directly because of my my drug addiction. Um, and uh, but again, I went in for. With having some bit of hope of trying to save that relationship. I mean, I pretty much knew that it was over, but I, there was that little chance, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess more than anything at that time, I was doing it for my dad. Um, and I went to I went to a detox and, you know, I, I called and waited for a bed to open up and I went to a detox and then they um, they sent me to a program in, in Philadelphia, like right on the, the, the edge of Philadelphia. Um, it's a really great program. It's called Self-Help Movement. Um, and I went there and I did 45 days of inpatient. And at this facility they have on the first floor is inpatient rehab. They have a halfway house on the second floor, which you, if you get approved, uh, you live there for 90 days and you can, you know, go out to work. You have a curfew, you know, um, weekly urinalysis and a random um at any time and then on the third floor they have kind of what is like a uh like a recovery house setting uh you pay to live there but you still have some accountability right like you can you can stay out on the weekends but there's an in-house meeting every sunday night that you have to be back for and you have your urines and all that stuff so um i ended up getting sent there and like i said i, I did 45 days of inpatient and during the time that I was in inpatient, um, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend and there was, you know, some hope of things working out and stuff, you know. So uh, when I got uh, I got approved to go to the second floor and I went upstairs and I started taking pictures of the dirty bathroom and the small bedroom and six hours later I left. And I dope fiend my way right out the front door and um, went went home and uh and then you know kind of limped on for another two years um you know went pretty quickly pretty quickly went right back into active addiction yep. um and then 
uh, you know, ended up that relationship completely failed, completely ended, um, ended up living with my dad. Um, so he was, um, he was living in a one bedroom apartment. He was essentially confined to a hospital bed in his living room. Um, he had had, um, surgery to have, he had, he had kidney stones and the kidney stones were, um, larger than normal so that they, he couldn't pass them. So he had to have surgery to have them removed. And in that surgery, uh, there was nerve damage that was done. And, um, because of the nerve damage, he was in constant pain. Uh, it was really hard for him to move around and over, uh, a few years time, he became morbidly obese. He, um, developed diabetes and had all types of health problems and stuff. So, um, I moved in with him and, uh, was living in the bedroom and, um, basically had no life whatsoever. Uh, my life completely consisted of using, stealing, uh, manipulating all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, over those few years, um, he was on every pain medication that you could possibly think of. And I stole every single one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, he was on every set, Percocet, Darvocet, Loracet, every one of those, and then onto morphine pills yeah. and then onto, um, fentanyl patches. Oh, um, yeah, hundred milligram fentanyl patches. Um, and I was stealing them too. Um, I overdosed on those. Um, I had two stuck on my body. And so when they first came out, they were, um, it was a patch that, you know, you put on your skin, they lasted for 72 hours and it mm -hmm. slowly, you know, released the drug into your system over the 72 hour period. So I had two on and I had one over my heart, which, you know, you really weren't supposed to do. Um, but the first, when they came out, they were, um, kind of hard to explain, but like, it was like a gel inside of a pouch, mm -hmm. almost like a Capri Sun, right? Yep. But one side being sticky. So, you know, I just looked up on the internet, what, you know, how to get high from them. Um, and it was just as simple as, you know, someone wrote, I don't know if it was on a Reddit thread or whatever, um, just cut the end and squeeze the juice, you know, the, the gel into your mouth. And <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, so I did that and uh, I passed out in his bathroom and uh, woke up to him trying to get into the bathroom, but I had the door locked um, and was just out of it. And, um, you know, luckily I woke up and, uh, you know, I came out and he, what are you doing in there? And oh, I'm not feeling good, you know. Um, and then I kind of dipped and dabbled with Adderall at that time a little bit. Um, so, you know, I had a couple stints, like, you know, one specifically where I was up for eight days and, um, you know, I had a whole script of Adderall and the fentanyl and was just out of my mind. Um, and then 2017 was, was really, it got to 2017 was really the first time that I went to treatment like for myself. Um, that I was the one, you know, that made a decision really on my own. Um, and that was the first time that I really put any 
any sort of effort into a program. Um, yeah, so 2017, you know, that was, I went away, I uh, went back to the same detox and they sent me back to the same rehab, the self-help. Um, and I did uh, a little over 30 days in inpatient. I got sent to the halfway house again, I got approved again. And I, I went up there for 90 days and I went back to work and I, I started making meetings a lot. Um, and I got a home group and I got a sponsor. Um, I didn't use my sponsor as much as I should at that time, mm -hmm. but you know, I did have one. Um, and, but I made a lot of meetings and I got involved. Um, and, you know, I had a really good friend of mine that I had met at that rehab. We went through inpatient together and, uh, you know, the halfway house together, we were roommates at first and me and him made a lot of meetings together. We worked together, um, and we got to meet a lot of people. Um, and you know that, so then after my, the 90 days was up, I made the decision to move to the third floor and to pay to live and stay in this recovery setting. Um, and you know, things were pretty good. Like I, I wasn't doing everything that I was supposed to be doing as far as the program goes, mm -hmm. but I was doing a lot of it. Um, and I could see that my life was getting better. Um, you know, things weren't wonderful, you know what I mean? I was early recovery and I was, you know, rebuilding my life essentially. Um, but things were getting better. Um, I was happier. I was still, I was still a little angry and I was still kind of standoffish, but, um, you know, I wasn't depressed as much. I wasn't thinking about suicide as much. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, things were improving and getting better. Um, so then with about nine months clean, um, I had been living on the third floor for about two months. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I say this all the time, like as a joke, but, you know, I was on the plenty of fish and the Tinder mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had met, a, I, I saw a girl on plenty of fish that I dated like 20 years earlier. And, you know, it was like, well, that's weird. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of odd. So I just sent her a message and, you know, she messaged back, we started talking and, um, you know, we had went out like on a lunch date and, you know, we were talking all the time and stuff. And then, um, so I ended up moving right over the bridge into New Jersey, uh, with her with about nine months clean. And, uh, I moved over there and, you know, I was eight miles away from where I grew up. I was eight miles away from where all my recovery was. And when I moved over there, I pushed away from all of it. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I got a job and somehow, some way, essentially white knuckling it, I ended up having 26 months clean. And I was doing nothing that I was supposed to do as far as the program goes. The only right. thing that I was doing was not picking up. That was the only thing that I was doing. Um, so then in uh, July of 2019, uh, I was at work. Um, I was covering for a guy that worked the second shift and I was covering for him while he was on vacation. So I got done work at like 11 o'clock at night. I came home um, to, to our apartment. I, you know, I said hi to her. She was you know, in bed. I said hi, talked to her for a few minutes. Uh, and then I went in to get a shower. And when I came out of the bathroom, she was sitting Indian style on the bed and was slumped over. And I went and 
picked her up and she had blood coming out of her nose and coming out of her mouth. And I had had uh, CPR training a couple different times from coaching football and basketball, uh, youth football and basketball. So I just pulled her down off the bed and started doing CPR. I called 911, the ambulance came. And um, long story short, she had a brain aneurysm at 39 years old. And uh, the next day, you know, I called her parents and her sister and she was being kept alive, you know, by machines. Um, and she had told me and her sister at different times, cause the same thing happened to her grandmother, that she wouldn't want to be kept alive that way. Um, ultimately the decision was her parents and, uh, they made the decision, uh, the following afternoon to pull the plug and, uh, she passed within about six minutes. Oh. Um, and it totally broke me, right? It was the first thing that any type of bad thing that happened, you know, in, in my recovery at that time. And because I didn't have a program, a support group, um, I had nothing to lean on. Um, the day of her funeral, I ended up smoking a blunt with my neighbor. And that night I was coming back over that bridge back to Philly buying perks. Yep. Um, and within five months, I I lost it all. Um, I was evicted from the apartment. I had sold everything and anything that I had of value. Um, all, DUI, um, everything uh, within like five months. And it got to a point where when the sheriff came and knocked on the door, um, and I was being evicted. I had enough money to go to a motel and I went to a motel for, I think it was two nights. Um, and then I, I'd gone to brothers and it got to a point where I, I knew that it was, I was at a spot where I know where this leads, right? Been here, done this before. Um, but I also knew what was on the other side of the fence. I also knew what was possible from, you know, particularly those nine months that I had in 2017 before I moved to Jersey when I was involved in a program and I was doing things other than just not picking up. Mm-hmm. I knew what was on the other side of it. Um, so um, I went back to treatment. So in February of 2020, I went back over to Philly. And I went to a, a crisis center and um, told them, you know, about my second suicide attempt. And um, they sent me back to the same place that I went in 2011, but not to the psych ward. Um, and when I was doing my inpatient rehab there, I, you know, that was when COVID hit, right? Like mm-hmm. I said, my dates to 2020. So. Uh, I was in rehab when the first case in the United States was confirmed. Um, everything stopped. No more outside meetings. Um, you know, no, no visitors, no drop-offs, no nothing. Um, and I begged my counselor to get me back to self-help. And, um, you know, luckily I was able to go back there. So I did my inpatient at this other place and I was sent straight to the halfway house 
of the the rehab that I went to in 2017, 15 and 17 mm-hmm. uh, on April 1st. And that almost didn't happen because of COVID. Um, so I went straight to the halfway house and um, everything was on Zoom. You know, no meetings were open, not in any fellowship. Yeah. Um, so everything was on Zoom, but I, you know, I got back involved. I went back to my old home group, which was on Zoom. Um, I ended up getting a sponsor. And then as meetings started to open back up, I, I jumped in with both feet. Um, and then when my time was up in the halfway house, because of COVID, there wasn't enough room on the third floor at that time. Um, so there was a, a friend that I had made in the first rehab that I went to. Um, and he said, you know, look, why don't you come stay at my house, you know, in, in the basement, uh, mm-hmm. there's a room, you know, you can rent this room. Um, so that's what I did. I, I rented the room. I was, you know, I was going to go to a recovery house, but, um, you know, I ended up going there and, uh, you know, like I said, when meetings started to open back up, I really got involved this time. And the, the big difference for me this time around was, um, you know, like I said, I was, I was kind of standoffish and I, I build walls and I don't let people in. Um, that's because your trauma. I knew that that was something that was going to have to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that that was something that kept me sick. And I made a concerted effort to change that this time. Um, I also had a psychologist for the first eight or nine months. Um, you know, I've been, I've been, I've had depression and anxiety since I was 19. I was diagnosed at 19 years old. And um, when I was, I got back on a mood stabilizer. Um, and I took that up until just a few months ago. Um, and that helped me a lot too. Um, I just stopped taking it a few months ago. Um, and that's, it's, I've been good without it. Um, but I felt like it was something that I needed at the time. Um, and, you know, listen, over the last 23 months, my life is awesome. Okay. Um, I have a pretty decent job, right? Um, I'm very involved in my fellowship. I have an H&I commitment where I take meetings into a facility. Um, I have a, a sponsor who has become more than just a sponsor. Um, you know, that friend that I met in 2017 that I that I made meetings and stuff, you know, a lot with, um, he actually had gone back out and has now come back into the fellowship and he just celebrated a year and me and him are very close. Um, and, you know, I met my my now fiance. Um, we've been together for like a year and a half. Um, and, you know, she's been tremendous. Like she read the basic text on her own. She's not one of us, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, she's a normal right yeah yeah normie they call him a normie yeah right. <laughs> i don't like saying that it's weird to me <laughs> no i know I, that's why i think the, you know the, the, i think it's funny but um but you know she's not an addict she's not one of us um you know she can you know have two drinks and that's it you yeah. know what i mean um and doesn't do anything else um but she took it upon herself to read the basic text just to try to understand me better 
Um, and she's been very supportive as far as me, you know, going to meetings and, um, and doing things like this and, you know, and having the H and I commitment. Um, and my life has be has gotten tremendously better. Um, I've learned to open up more with, you know, just in the rooms, um, with my sponsor, with other friends in recovery. Um, and, you know, I know that, you know, me and you, uh, kind of met through TikTok, right? I have yeah. a very, I have a very sick, sex, sick sense of humor. Um, I can laugh about my addiction and I can laugh about, um, the things that I've been through now, right? Um, you know, some people aren't that way and that's fine. You know, everybody deals with things in their own way. Um, but you know, when I first got on TikTok, I thought it was a big joke, you know, and it's just a bunch of young kids dancing to songs. And, um, you know, the more I've gotten on there and the more the algorithm has kind of, uh, molded it to me, the more recovering addicts I have on it. And, um, you know, I make a lot of sick jokes about recovery and and um but i also i'm also able to see and meet other people in recovery um through tiktok so you know i know that might sound funny to some people but you know like you know i got to meet jd i've gotten to meet you i've gotten to you know see other people and follow other people and people that follow me you know that that are in this situation you know that we're in um, as recovering addicts or alcoholics. Um, and I think it's a really great community that's on there. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of serious stuff and I think that's awesome. And there's also a lot of sick people like me that, you know, can make jokes about it. Right. Um, and I think it's all good. I don't really think any of it is bad. Um, like I said, my life today, you know, hopefully, you know, in about a month, I'll be coming up on two years and, and I, I never would have thought this was possible. Um, if you would have told me 10 years ago that I would be where I am today, I would have thought you were crazy. And, you know, my sponsor says it all the time, like he just celebrated seven years and, and he says all the time that, you know, people, you know, they say life beyond your wildest dreams. And that if, if he says that, um, you know, if you would have, you would have told him How's he, how does he put it? Like that basically if he, he would have sold himself short, if he, if you would have asked him seven years ago, what do you want from this? And he would have told you he would have been selling himself short. Um, and I feel the same way in a lot of ways. Um, I, I never would have thought that this was possible. Honestly, never would have thought that this was possible. It's insane to hear that for me because it's like, I was so, I didn't, you know, my, my story is very, it's not long. It has a lot in it and it's a shorter time, you know, it's a pretty short time period, but I went through so much shit in that time and didn't know how to cope with it. Like, like I said, my parents, my parents were probably the most unbalanced people I've ever seen in my life. And so to have what I have now, I'm married to someone who's sober um, I, I met him when I was about a little bit over a year sober. I was just, my friend set us up and he just, she didn't even know he stopped drinking mm. and he had gotten like really bad towards the end. And we literally, because of our past, 
it made us open up in a way because we had we had worked on so much with ourselves in a way where literally what takes people like three years to talk about took us nine hours and we just there was like this connection that was just like okay we can be open and honest with each other and that's all right and I was in like a very open part of my recovery at that time but still ashamed where obviously I'm not now I talk about my stuff like all the time so for me I can relate to that feeling where you're just like you're when you're in your disease you're just like I don't really know how my life's gonna be now but it's got to be better than this right it's got to be better than me being sad and depressed and whatever and you don't, I didn't imagine, I didn't imagine that I'd be with somebody who's sober and be so happy. His family is like insanely understanding, non-judgmental. Um, I'm closer to my family than I've ever been. I run a podcast, which was like the only thing I wanted to do. And I'm able to bring so much more awareness. Like I have people who are my friends who don't have a problem contact me and be like what you're doing is amazing like keep it up you know so and I was so scared to tell my story because I'm like everyone's gonna judge me and what's gonna happen and I've helped so much people just from TikTok alone yeah like I went on TikTok and I was going live and I'm like I didn't think I could have a podcast and if I didn't meet JD we wouldn't be sitting here because right. he literally zoomed me and was like okay this is everything you got to do this is how you do it and I literally can text him at five in the morning he'll respond to me I'm like, yep, all right, just go do this. And like, things are good. And it's just so, so nice to have that. And our, our GOCs are completely different. Me and JD, like he doesn't even, he didn't dabble really with alcohol. So it's so funny to have this connection. And we both interviewed each other. And you can see how, even though our stories are so different, we're connected. And I like that that can happen. And I like that, unfortunately, I don't think TikTok is like, it's all right. It's not the best place. <laughs> but when you weed out that other stuff, yeah. you're able to like find some good people and help some good people. And it's it was it's what makes it worth it. Like I try to tell people like I'm happier than I've ever been, even on a day where I'm like having a bad day. Because I'm yeah. still happy. I'm so fortunate for what I have. So yeah. so now you said before that you did the NA program. So did you do all of the steps? Have you done all the step work? Where are you in that part? It's uh, hard. No. It's hard. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, so, I, you know, and I'll just say this for, I don't know if it's, um, from what I know from my experience, it's kind of the same. And I don't know what part of the country you're in, um, but I, I feel from my experience, um, you know, this is kind of something that's, uh, no matter where you go for AA and NA, um, you know, AA, you seem to go through the steps very quickly. Um, but it's, you know, it's a never ending process, right? As soon as you get through them, you start right back up. Right. And with NA, I feel like it's a much slower process. And, you know, especially with a lot of, um, you know, newer NA members today, uh, you know, we work the steps through the step working guide. And, you know, there's 65 questions on step one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that that's something that's different um, as yeah, far as the fellowships go. Um, and I'll be honest with you, right? Like I didn't do step work um, for probably the first year. Um, I think it was right before my year, I started to pick up step work. And I got about halfway through the questions in step one and then put it back down. Um, 
overwhelming. It, it is. It is. Um, and just recently, um, you know, a few weeks ago, I had COVID. Um, oh. And I was, you know, in quarantine, stuck in the Born room. in the house. <laughs> right, right. And, um, you know, like, I, and I, I told my sponsor this. I told my fiance this. Like, my thing, I have no problem reading, right? I'll read all day. No problem with that. I hate the writing, right? Yeah. I absolutely despise putting pen to paper. Um, so I had talked to another another addict and they had said about using the voice to text in my phone. Um, and I was like, you know, I give that a try, right? So, you know, just in the, the notes section of my phone and I started back up my step work. And, you know, I I had, you know, half the questions done in step one from like a year ago, but I was like, no, I'm going to go back and start over. Um, so in the time that I was in quarantine, I probably did, I don't know, maybe 10 questions or whatever, maybe less mm -hmm. than that. Um, so look, I'm not, you know, I'm not perfect when it comes to, to step work. Um, I'm not a perfect recovering addict in any way. Most days, no the only is. things, the only thing that I do perfect most days is I don't pick up. Yeah. Uh, and as long as I don't pick up, then I have a chance. Um, it is something that I, I've i noticed um, probably within like the last six months or so that it's probably the thing, you know, look, like I said, I'm, I'm happy. Um, I'm extremely grateful to not be in active addiction. Um, I'm extremely grateful for the life that I have today. But there's still, I still feel that there's maybe something missing, right? And, and I don't mean, you know, material things or yeah. relationships or, or anything like that. I just feel like there's something missing um, for me mentally or spiritually or whatever you want to call it. And I feel like it's probably step work. Um, and it's probably something that I do need to you know, devote more time to. Um, and I can't really tell you, I can't pinpoint and tell you why I don't. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's just me being lazy or procrastinating or if in the back of my mind, I'm afraid of it. I don't know what it is. I really don't know. Yeah. Um, but I just haven't, I haven't done step work the way I'm supposed to. You know, coming up with two years clean and only being halfway through step one, it's not great. And yeah, I'll be the I think that I, I think that you know a lot of people try to be try to there's some people who are like oh it should take you a really long time there's some people who are like oh I did it really quick and then there's some people who are like oh it took like a year and a half and I don't think I think everyone is so different and it depends what happened and you have a lot of shit that you went through and that's unpacking a lot of stuff and that's emotional and that's vulnerable and that comes with and we don't have our times are I, I'm going to be three years in April. So our times aren't like super far apart. I'm not like 10 years and I'm like, oh, I have it all. And I don't even I wouldn't honestly, I wouldn't even listen to an old timer who sat there and said, I have it all because you everyone is so different, you know, and I think you get through things the way you want to get through it. And when you're ready and sometimes there is something in your mind that's stopping you, unfortunately, until you're ready to take those steps until you're like to a place where you're ready for that. And that may be what's going on with you. So don't feel like, like tr rushing it is what you're supposed to do, or even feel like there's some kind of timeline. 
even if it takes you 10 years, the important part is that you did it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that my sponsor has told me because, you know, even my sponsor, like I said, he just celebrated seven years and he's only on like step eight. Yeah. Um, you know, so his thing is, look, it's on your time. You know, there's mm -hmm. no, you know, it doesn't say anywhere in the basic text that you have to do a step a week or a step a month or a step a year. There's no timeline. It's, it's your step work. It's not anyone else's. And, you know, he just suggests that I keep doing it, whatever that is. If it's a question a week, you know, whatever right. it is, as long as I keep doing it. Um, yeah. So, so like I said, I, you know, there's days where I still have resentments and there's, you know, um, there's days that I'm still, you know, I'm angry or, you know, whatever. Um, but my life today is tremendously different than it was two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't pick up. Yeah. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. And I, you know, there's been time, like, I was, you know, I, I've been saying this for, it's been a few months or whatever, but um, it's actually has gotten better recently, but um, probably from about a year to about 18 months, my disease was coming at me with weed, right? Mm -hmm. And it was, you can smoke, right? Mm -hmm. You'll be fine. Right. <laughs> and um, listen, I'm not going to lie. There's a part of me that wishes that I could. Not yeah. a part of me. They're, it's just me. I yeah. wish I could smoke weed, right? Because I truly enjoyed it, you know? Um, but I know 100% that it's only a matter of time. Before right? it leads you to the other stuff. Absolutely. I have a track record. Yeah. I've before, I've seen it before, I've lived it before. So it might be a week. It might be six months. It might be two years. Who knows? But I know for a fact that if I smoke pot, at some point down the line, my brain's going to go, well, you're fine with this. You can take yep. that 30. Yep. Yep. And then, and then it's over. Mm -hmm. And then it's over. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I 100% I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think... I'm I'm so glad I didn't look up anything because I'm so, I'm like I'm so glad that we did this organically and and I think you're one hell of a guy. Thank um, you. Now, if you were, I I think and I hope that some people who may think they have an issue do listen. I really, for me, that's I when I got sober in 2019, there weren't a lot of things there are now. And it wasn't easy to go and find what I needed to find. And that bothered me, which is a big reason why I do this. And what would you say to somebody who kind of was in your position where you were kind of, excuse my language, you're kind of dicking around for a while. You were like, okay, uh, yeah, I'm going to do this, but okay, I'm not ready. And then a couple years later, okay, I'm going to do this again. Oh, uh, no, I'm still not fucking ready. And then going on, what would you tell somebody who's listened to the show Who's thinking, you know, I might have a problem. What do I do? Like, what do I do? I mean, that's that's a heavy question. It is. I end with a heavy question. <laughs> I really don't I don't know entirely how to answer that. Um, because listen, I'm a I'm a big believer in there's a lot of different pathways to recovery, right? And you know, for some people it's it's a religious pathway. 
Mm-hmm. Um, for some people, it's you know, it's it's a fellowship. Um, the only way that I know to answer that question for me, in my experience, is going to a fellowship, going to a twelve-step fellowship, no matter what that is, whether whether that's AA, NA, CA, whatever it is, and just go into a meeting with an open mind. Mm-hmm. And do not go into a meeting, you know, like you said, right? Like you're you, like you said with JD, right? You and JD's DOC is completely different. My and your DOC is completely different. Um, and you know, I was told early on by you know people with time was focus on the similarities, not the differences, right? So I can go into a meeting and I can hear, you know, I never shot dope, I never smoked crack, I never drank, right? But I can go into a meeting and I can I'm able to separate what someone's DOC is, right, from what mine was. Mm-hmm. So whether you smoked crack or whether whether you shot dope, I can separate the DOC out of it and I can just say the addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, look, and I don't know your whole story. I don't know JD's whole story, right? But I know that my DOC and your DOC brought me and you to the same place, mm-hmm. right? So I would just say go into a 12-step meeting, being open-minded and willing to listen and to not try to focus on the, the differences. And if you can relate to somebody in that room when they speak, and if your life has become unmanageable because of the drugs or alcohol that you're using, then maybe you're an addict Mm -hmm. and maybe you need to explore that a little bit more because there's a lot of help out here. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a unique position where, um, you know, being from Philly, you know, like I talked earlier about Kensington, a lot of people around the country know about Kensington, right? But there's also a lot of recovery here Mm -hmm. in both fellowships. And that probably is a direct result of there being, you know, maybe the largest open air drug market on the East Coast is right here, right? So maybe that is a direct result of that being there, there being a lot of recovery here. But, you know, I was in a position where it wasn't hard for me to go and find any of the fellowships. I mean, there's meetings, and I'm, you know, I'm also in a large market, right? I'm not going to take that out of, out of it either, right? I'm in a large city. Um, you know, I'm in the the fifth biggest market in the country, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of recovery here. There's meetings every night. There's meetings all different times of the day. Um, you know, one of the biggest meetings that we have in Philly, in NA, is right in the, the worst corner in Kensington. And there's meetings there three times a day. So, yeah, that would be my advice. It would just be go to a 12-step fellowship and and just listen. And if you can relate to, to whoever's speaking or you can relate to whoever's sharing, um, keep coming back. 